Do you mind turning to Exodus 17? Um, We'll be going through there. So, yeah, Exodus 17, verse 1 to 7. Let's read together. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, our children and our livestock, with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because there they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Is God with us or not? In the midst of these uncertain times, when we don't know what our president will be saying to us later on this evening, when we don't know what our December will look like, let alone our 2022, is the Lord among us or not? When COVID cases are rising once again, when more people are getting sick again, When more people are dying again. Is the Lord among us or not? With a new variant, which causes greater anxiety and frustration and confusion. Or with a fourth wave and subsequent restrictions that could possibly come with it. Is God with me or not? business goes bankrupt or when my expenses become more and more and my income becomes less and less is me when I lose the people that I love the most suddenly becomes frail and when something I've waited so long for or worked so hard for is taken away in our tragedies in our trials in our tears God are you with us Lord, are you among us? If I'm honest, this is a question that I've had to ask myself quite a bit recently. And I found myself asking it more and more. And I wonder if it's a question you've asked before, or even you're asking it today. In light of all that I'm going through, what we see around us, in light of all that has happened, Lord, are you with me or not? Well, that's the very question that the people of Israel asked in the wilderness here in our story in Exodus. Present circumstances, the result was them questioning God's presence, protection, and provision in their lives, to the point where they decided to take God to court. Yes, to court. The desert courtroom of Massa and Meribah. And so to structure our passage this morning, we'll see three major legal Firstly, a charge will be presented. Secondly, a verdict will be rendered. Lastly, based on that verdict, a sentence will be executed. A charge, a verdict, and a sentence. Would you look with me again in your Bibles to Exodus 17? Firstly, the charge. 
So first, who sets the scene for us in this desert courtroom? In walk the plaintiffs or the accusers, the people of Israel, and following them, the defendant, or rather the covenant lawyer, Moses himself. And court is in session. But the question is why? Why do we need to go into desert court? Well, because the people have brought along with them an accusation that needs an adjudication. There's a charge. So where do we see this in the text? If you look at verse 2, and you notice with me that when the people cry out for water, most of our Bibles say they either quarreled or they complained or argued with Moses. But this was no everyday, ordinary kind of argument. It wasn't over who decides which movie to watch that evening in the family house. It's heated. It's urgent. It's desperate. There's no water, so the people quarrel with Moses. Quite significantly, though, the word translated quarrel here is a very specific Hebrew word. It literally means to bring a lawsuit against. It's used to bring someone when someone brings a complaint in a legal context. In fact, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the actions of God, who brings a charge against his people when they disobey and break their covenant promises. But now in our story, we see that it's the people who are the ones bringing a charge. But who's the charge against? Initially, I think we might be tempted to say that it's against Moses. The first part of verse 2 says, The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. But have a look at Moses' reply in the next line. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? From his reply, it seems to suggest that in quarreling with Moses, the Israelites were in fact bringing a charge against God himself. To accuse Moses, God's mediator, was to accuse God. So we see a charge, and we see that the charge is against God. But what is it? Take a look with me at verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The Israelites are accusing Yahweh of abandoning them, their children and their livestock, to die of thirst in the desert. Would you picture it with me in your minds? You're an Israelite. You're in the hot, arid Sinai Peninsula. The scorching sun bakes its fierce heat as it penetrates through your thin cloths wrapped around your head. Hot winds relentlessly blow burning sand into the dry cracks of your face, searing every portion of your skin. Your lips are chapped. Your feet are sore. Your mouth is dry. This is your life. And in this parched land we call Sinai, weary bodies have been traveling for days that have turned into weeks, and weeks that have turned into months, and they can become easily dehydrated, obviously. And with each passing day, you have less and less water. Less water for yourself, less water for your children, less water for your livestock. And one by one, your containers begin to run dry until there's nothing left. Your life Your family, your source of income are dripping away with every last drop. This is your life. So in their desperation, in their thirst, in their need, the people feel abandoned. Has God left his people to die in the desert? Has he forgotten his people? Has he forsaken his promise? And do you remember that promise? The promise was given to Israel's great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. God told Abraham in Genesis that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But in light of their present circumstances, 
The Israelites are questioning God's faithfulness. They're questioning his presence, his protection and provision. It's like they're saying, Lord, I see a whole lot of sand out here, but I'm about to die. My children are about to die. My livestock are about to die. Lord, are you among us or not? And I wonder if this isn't where we too find ourselves in the wilderness wanderings of our present lives too. Don't we ask this question as well? Lord, are you among us or not? Think about it in those dark hours of the night when you can't sleep because your thoughts are racing, your head is spinning, and your mind is overwhelmed, anxious, and it all becomes very dizzying. Your heart is broken, your soul hollow. Your tears have been your only food day and night, feeling empty, confused, abandoned because of what has happened to you or what is happening to you right now. You're trying to make sense of why, trying to find the right words, when in truth the only thing in your heart that you can say is, God, are you with me? And what could be more fragile in our lives than our family and our finances? Consider when something happens to your family, you lose a loved one. You have conflict with your spouse. There's estrangement with a brother or sister. Or a child of yours is turned away from the Lord. Death, sudden or slow. These break our hearts. But they can also cause us to doubt God's nearness or his goodness. They may cause us to grow numb and even turn away from him. Consider struggling financially. Mandi's dwindling, the economy is crumbling, and there's more and more pressure to provide let alone survive. How often it's those situations, even for good, intentional Christians, that feel this tugging of doubt in our hearts. And we want to cry, Lord, are you among us or not? I wonder what it might be for you. What is causing you to doubt God's presence in your life? What's causing you to doubt his faithfulness to his promise and his goodness or his love for you. Because this is where the Israelites were. This is what they were facing. Their lives, their children, their source of income are literally about to die in front of them. And in this very real, very painful and desperate situation, they doubt. They doubt God's presence, his protection, his provision, and his love. Now we could ask, what's wrong with the Israelites' response? And what's not? I think firstly, what's not wrong, it's not their need, it's not their desperation, it's not their plea for water, it's not even their feelings of abandonment or doubt. These all reflect very normal, very human responses of a people living in a broken world. The issue is not their plea or their feelings of hopelessness, abandonment or doubt. What's wrong is firstly, with the Israelites' response, is firstly, what is lying underneath their plea for water. And secondly, what they then do in response to their need. So firstly, what lies underneath their plea for help? Well, as we've seen, behind their petition is really a charge. It stems from mistrust of God. They're not really asking for help, they're demanding it, and they're accusing God of unfaithfulness in light of their present circumstances. And secondly, they take their matters into their own hands. Would you look with me to verse 4? Notice that in their desperation, they're now threatening to stone Moses. This is not a normal way to settle any old argument, even for the ancients. No, you don't simply go around throwing rocks trying to kill someone that you disagree with. 
So what's going on? Instead of leaving the future up to chance anymore, the Israelites decide to take matters into their own hands. Their circumstances has led their hearts to become hard, and so they essentially cry out to God, God, you've broken your promise for the last time. I'm not sure if I can trust you anymore with my life or my future, and I'm sorry to say this, but I want out of the relationship. And to do that, they'll cut off their only means of connection between them and God. They'll kill their mediator. They'll stone Moses. And that'll be the end. They'll finally be on their own. So they think. But I hope that you can see that their response is actually an active rebellious decision that's rooted in mistrust of God and his plans. It's rooted outside the infinite wisdom and power of a creator. And it's rooted outside his merciful provision and his gracious presence. It's sin. A question you might be asking, but, but why stoning? Why mention stoning here? Well, stoning was the specific punishment for breaking a legal contract in the ancient Near East. Someone was stoned for failure to uphold a contractual, or more specifically, a covenantal promise. Essentially, the charge is treason. The action of betraying someone to whom you once owed allegiance, that's their charge against God. In the midst of their present circumstances, their hearts have become so hard that they turn away from the Lord and have said, God, you've broken your promise. You've been unfaithful to your covenant and someone needs to be punished. Moses must die. And so they bring a charge against God. The charge has been recorded and the arguments have been given. Well, what's next? The verdict. Would you turn with me again to verse 5? And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So two things are significant here. Firstly, as Moses walks on ahead of the people, everyone there is watching the scene unfold, knows that the verdict is already guilty. Guilty as charged. Why? Well, because Moses is carrying a very important stick. This isn't any old ordinary walking stick to help an aging Moses walk from place to place. No, the narrator goes out of his way to record God's words saying, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Why that? Why that phrase, the staff with which you struck the Nile? Well, if you remember back in the Exodus story, when Israel were still slaves in Egypt, when Pharaoh did not let the Israelites go, what happened? Yahweh intervened. God intervened. He sent plagues. And those plagues were God's judgment on Pharaoh for his disobedience to his word. So when Moses struck the Nile, turning the very source of life for the Egyptian people into blood, it was a strike of judgment. It was a strike of guilty, guilty of disobedience against Yahweh's word. And now the staff is back. And once again, it'll be used to strike a judgment. So everyone watching knows that something bad is about to happen. But secondly, as Moses walks on, not only with his staff, but also with the elders of Israel. Why is this significant? Well, because the elders serve as a kind of jury. Again, in the legal context of the situation, their presence is necessary for justice to be served. And so, the, so there goes Moses with the staff in his hand. There go the elders. And the people say, someone is about to get it. The verdict is guilty. But I think we need to stop here. We need to ask the question, well, who is guilty, really? As we've seen the charges against God, 
But when we look back in Exodus, up to this point in the story, has God really been unfaithful to them? Is the people's charge valid? Think back with me. It wasn't that long ago, just a few chapters before in Exodus, where the Israelites experienced one of the most amazing events in their history. A story that they would tell from generation to generation, even to this very day. The crossing of the Red Sea. And as Israel were fleeing their old slave master Pharaoh and his oncoming army, they reached the Red Sea. And there Moses stood. He rose his hands and the waters parted and close to two million people walked untouched by the roaring walls of water. And as the last Israelite stepped onto the opposite shore, Moses brings down his hands. The waves engulf their past oppressors and they are freed. Tangibly, God had demonstrated his faithfulness to them, physically displaying his power, his protection, and his provision for them. But wait, that wasn't enough. If that wasn't enough, there's more. In the wilderness, the people were hungry. I wonder if you remember. In the desert, they didn't have enough food. So what does God do? He opens the skies and pours down quail and manna to eat, sustaining all of them along their journey. But yet, there's still more. Our passage this morning is not the first time the Israelites were thirsty. They had come to a brook at Marah, but the water there was bitter. So Moses throws in this log, and immediately the water becomes sweet. So they drink their full and are satisfied. Time and time again, God had demonstrated his faithfulness to his people. And yet at the first sign of difficulty, what do they do? They sow seeds of doubt, only to reap what? Rebellion and outright rejection of God. And it's at this point in our story that the tragic irony of this courtroom drama emerges. You see, Israel brings a charge against God, accusing him of unfaithfulness, betrayal, and abandonment. Yet when we look back at Exodus, it was actually the people themselves who were unfaithful. They had betrayed their covenant promises, and they had abandoned God. This place, even where the event takes place, is called Meribah, which means quarreling, and Masa, which means testing, and Israel had failed At the first sign of hardship, they turned their back on the relationship and walked away. In the Exodus story, there is a guilty party. But it isn't God. It's the people. And in this dramatic twist, the script is flipped. Now it's the Israelites who should be charged with covenant unfaithfulness, and the verdict is guilty. But here lies a problem. If you have been following closely, you remember that the punishment for treason and unfaithfulness is death, death by stoning. And if every Israelite is guilty, that means every Israelite deserves to be punished, to be put to death. What does this mean for God's people? What does this mean for God's promise, the promise that God would multiply them on the sands of the seashore? Yet according to his nature, God has to be just. Justice has to be served. And it's here then, friends, at the rock of Masa and Meribah, where we see the triumph of God's grace. The sentencing. Would you look with me again at verse 6? So at the command of God, Moses raises the staff of judgment, and what follows is utterly astounding. See what the Lord says. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God tells his servant to strike the rock, And yet, two seemingly insignificant words appear before the command. Two simple prepositions that make all the difference. Not only in understanding this passage, but two simple yet seemingly insignificant prepositions that make all the difference for you and I 
when we struggle with trusting God in the midst of our difficult circumstances. Do you see them there in verse 6? Two simple prepositions, before and on. God says, I will stand before you, and I will stand on the rock. Why is this significant? Firstly, God says, I will stand before you. Astonishingly, as you go through the Old Testament, whenever you have a legal situation, guess which person stands before. It's always the guilty. It's always the guilty defendant standing before the righteous judge. And now here in our narrative, although he's not guilty, we see God says of himself, I will do this before you. I will go before you. Secondly, God says, I will stand on the rock at Horeb. He's saying, I am symbolically for this moment identifying myself with this rock. And now, this might sound strange initially, but as we consider the rest of Scripture again, we see numerous occasions where God is referred to as our rock. Here's a few. In Deuteronomy, we read, He abandoned the God who made him. He rejected the rock, his Savior. Or in the Psalms, Psalm 78, they remembered that God was their rock, that God was their redeemer. And lastly, Psalm 95 exclaims, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Significantly, when we see God being referred to as a rock in scripture, it always seems to have creating or saving and redeeming connotations with it. God is our rock, our sure foundation, because he's our creator, our redeemer and savior time and time again. And here in our story, we see God come to his people's rescue at the rock of Horeb. Israel would put God on trial for breaking his covenant, yet they are the true covenant breakers. God is not guilty. The people are. They deserve punishment and death. But what does God do? Amazingly, he stands in the place of the accused. He willingly bears their judgment, and he's inflicted with a penalty that they deserve. If the people are to be saved, only he can take their punishment. And so he does. He receives the charge, the verdict, and the sentencing. And so Moses lifts up the staff of judgment, and he strikes the rock. And what happens? Water flows out. Thirst-quenching, life-sustaining, substitutionary atoning water. The people are saved from their thirst. More than that, they're saved from their death, all because of God's mercy and grace. Many years later, the Apostle Paul would write to Christians, like you and me, who struggle in the difficulties of this pilgrim life that we're called to journey. He writes to these fledgling Christ followers to maintain their trust and their hope in their faithful God. And as he does so, he remembers a story, our story this morning of Massa and Meribah. And speaking of the Israelites, he says, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them And that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. That rock that was struck for Israel in the desert was Christ. And he was the rock that was struck for you and for me. You see, more than 1,500 years before Jesus was born, God had really set a plan to save a wayward people to himself. A people who mumble and grumble. A people who doubt and reject him. A people who have sinned and broken the covenant. A people like you and me. And in his infinite wisdom... In his undeserved mercy and in his wondrous grace, he offers up himself in his son. 
the innocent son, who didn't sin, who was faithful to the covenant and to the law, and yet who offers himself as a substitute for you and for me. The son who goes to the cross to bear our punishment, who is struck with the judgment that we deserve, and as he hangs on the cross, a sword is thrust into his side. What comes out? Blood and water. And with them, forgiveness and healing and freedom and hope. What pours out is life. By his stripes we are healed. Just last Sunday marked the beginning of Advent, where in the weeks leading up to Christmas we look back and remember the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. As Christ followers at Christmas, we remember and cherish and celebrate the God who drew near to us, who became one of us, who humbled himself as he came into this world as a little baby boy, born in a backwards town in the Middle East, to a teenage mother in an animal feeding trough. The God who dwelt with us. The God who made his tent, who tabernacled with us. The God who knows what it is to suffer. Who understands pain and rejection and loss. Who went through the trials and temptations of the wilderness, yet who remained faithful. The God who so loved me and who so loves you that he sacrificed his own son for us but who also raised him from the dead, defeating sin and death. And because of that, we can have hope. You can have hope. You can have strength to carry on in faith and in trust in the midst of the present circumstances and struggles and sufferings that you go through. How do you persevere in your present pain and feelings of doubt and abandonment and hopelessness? You look back to who God is and what he's done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God with us. He was with us, and yet he's still with us now. Because as Christians, we have the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, now living in you and me. God with us, God in us. Everywhere, always. There's nowhere you can go where he is not there. The same spirit of life, our promised comforter, our sustainer, and our strength when we have nothing left. Therefore, brother and sister, in the midst of your pain and in your doubt and your loss, in the midst of the uncertainty of what the next month and years look like, no matter what the circumstance is, where you find yourself, don't harden your heart as Israel did in the desert. But trust, find your hope, your peace, and your joy in the gracious, loving, faithful, and ever-present God. Is the Lord among us or not? Yes. He's always been. He's here right now. And he will always be. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He's with me to the end. Can I pray? Father God, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that there is nowhere that we can go from your presence. Thank you that you see us and you hear us. That you know our pain, you know our uncertainty, our doubts. And yet you promise to be our comforter, our sustainer, and our strength. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters as I pray for myself in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of loss, in the midst of pain, 
would we find our hope and our security on the firm foundation of Christ the rock that was struck for us. For your glory and for our peace, we pray. Amen.